Welcome to the Mill Creek View, Tennessee podcast with your host, Steve Abramowitz, Editor-in-Chief of the Mill Creek View newspaper. Welcome back, y'all, to the Mill Creek View, Tennessee podcast. We are focusing on the volunteer state, all your socials, Twitter, Facebook, Getter, Truth Social, yes, but not all, not Gab or MySpace or MeWe, don't even know what MeWe is, never even been on it. Sounds like part of this pronoun madness. Uh, Got to be accurate or the mob will come out. Uh, he said he's on all. He's not on PP. Such a liar. Therefore, everything he's ever said for 145 episodes is totally discredited. Anyway, while you're almost there anyway, uh, but not me, we please subscribe. It's totally free to you. Welcome to our People in News episode where I interview people who are making an impact and are lovers of truth. Today we are talking with Kelly Jackson. Kelly Jackson is a recent escapee from corporate America and a California refugee to Tennessee. And we just found out Washington as well, like me. Christ follower, wife, and mom of three amazing teenagers, although I think one may be beyond teenager now. She has a BA in communications from Point Loma Nazarene University and has a background in law enforcement and human resources. Very well-rounded. Since the summer of 2020, she has spent any and all free time in the trenches with local grassroots organizations, including Moms for Liberty, Williamson County, we've had Robin Steeman on here, and Tennessee Stands as a core member. We've had Gary Humble on here twice. Outspoken advocate for parents' rights, medical freedom, we love that, and individual liberty, we really love that. Kelly, thank you for coming on the Mill Creek View with me for the first time. Hard to believe it's first time. Has the mob ever come for you? Has the mob ever come for me? Doing your reporting on a conservative no, website. Good. Not yet. Not yet. Um, almost everybody, I don't think I've gotten a single um, critical email. Most of the time I get questions or i will just get compliments which is is very nice that's great yeah congratulations and you being in the conservative news business uh even in a red state like tennessee it can happen but luckily not for you yet i know all about that um and i know ttc has been throttled way back on facebook so they're on to you all um now are you nashville davidson and williamson county based for brandon or eastern side with him or the whole state how do you specialize um i mostly cover the the nashville area so anything in davidson or williamson county i mean i would cover anything probably in middle tennessee because it's within driving distance for me Okay. All right. I'm actually driving three hours east tomorrow to celebrate his birthday bash weekend with him. Uh, don't tell anyone, but I got him a gift. Uh, uh, can't say what it is. Maybe Tuesday I'll tell everyone and for sure put it out there on Twitter um, or my new MeWe account, uh, whatever that is. Uh, I'll give you a hint. It relates to Tuesday's Halloween show. So, but about you, how did you uh, find TennesseeConservativeNews.com and team up with them for journalism? Well, I'd always been aware of them because, as I said, I've been in the trenches since 2020, since they pulled my kids out of school. All three of my children have IEPs. So being pulled out of school and having to do school on laptops was particularly difficult for them. IEP? Uh, IEP is an individualized education plan. All of my kids are special education. So it made learning a lot harder. I just got very determined and got connected to all of the grassroots. That's how, that's when I met Gary. Um, And soon thereafter, um, I started 
reading uh, Tennessee conservative news. I was aware of it, but uh, I left my first corporate job um, about a year ago and writing has always been a passion of mine. I have a communication degree. And so I actually contacted Brandon and it turned out they actually needed a reporter at the time. So it just was, it was, as I say, it was a God thing. Uh, yeah. 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 I mean, we all, we so for those that don't know, first time watchers, Brandon Lewis is the owner and founder of TennesseeConservativeNews.com. And Gary, who we just mentioned, is Gary Humble, who runs Tennessee Stands and um, has been on the show. So you can go back and look at old episodes for that. But now back to you. So you worked with Gary, found Brandon, yeah. needed, uh, wanted journalism, found somebody who needed journalism, and boom. Yeah. Jesus put you guys together. It really was that. I mean, it was, in fact, I had gotten on one of these sites where you look for freelance work and it just turned out that they had been looking for a reporter on that same site. It just, we hadn't connected. And so I reached out to him knowing we had mutual friends. We'd actually probably met at one of the events here in Williamson County that we'd all been to, but um, I just reached out to him and I said, Hey, this is what I'd like to do. And he said, yeah, we need somebody. And so here you go. And so I've been doing it now for almost a year and it's been wonderful. I've just enjoyed every single minute of it. We have a great group of people that are contributing. Jason is fantastic. And Brandon, of course, is amazing. So Jason Vaughn, his general manager. Um, Did you always have a yearning to be in journalism and were a, a, uh, suppressed journalist at your other jobs and finally get to break out and be who you always wanted to be? Or is this something that you're like, ah, I just have to do it, but I don't like it. Um, when I was in college, I toyed with the idea. I had a sort of a, of a concentration in mass communication. So I had taken a television production and things like that. And I'd always written when I was in college, but I knew I wanted to have a family. And in that business, it is not very conducive to family. So that was something I'd sort of set aside. Um, I ever since we ever since Facebook or social media became a thing, um, I've utilized it like a blog. So I've had an outlet, just not in a journalistic sense. So this has been my opportunity now that there's so much to report on. We've always had things to report on. But I think specifically since about 2015, when the curtain was drawn back and we so much light was shed on so many things and then COVID happened and so many things were um, so evident with what was going on with COVID. Um, just the the idea of truth telling. And then it became so obvious that the media, the mainstream media was doing their best to cover for all of the COVID nonsense. We just, we needed, people were looking for an alternative means of the new, for the news, someplace that they knew they could look to for some truth and um, honesty in the circumstances that we all were seeing around us, but we were being gaslit and told weren't happening. So I, I, and I have a, I have a relatively big mouth. So (laughs) well, we'd like to just call you a lover of truth here, but uh, (laughs) if you want to say that about yourself, that's fine. Um, So now the site is only two years old, I think maybe three now you've been there a whole year. So a big percentage of the time that it's even been around, um, you, you said you've been there just over a year. I've been here just about over a year, year. not, not a year. quite even. It'll okay. be a year in January. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what are some of the issues uh, near and dear to your heart you're digging into right now? 
Uh, well, recently, the last two articles, um, specifically the one on uh, the, the the Tennessee Sex Offender Registry, um, I I used to work in law enforcement. And so I know something about how the registry operates. And what I found interesting is that um, sex offenders are getting representation in court. And what they're doing is they are suing the state of Tennessee to remove them from the registry. The registry was created in 2004. They are arguing that if they offended and they uh, served their sentences and all of that was managed before the registry's um, creation, that to add them to the registry because they committed a crime that would have put them there after 2004 is additional punitive uh, uh, consequences. It's almost like adding to their sentence, which would be considered ex post facto uh, as far as the Supreme Court is concerned. Um, so what they're doing is they're just essentially hiring. There's one particular attorney that is almost making it their business to represent these sex offenders. And if they sue the state enough, they figure that the damages will create enough of a bill that maybe the taxpayers won't want to pay that. And they will uh, change the sex offender registry laws or the laws that pertain to the sex offender registry and maybe make it a little easier for sex offenders to get removed from the registry. Wow, um, that is definitely something people need to know. Are you yeah. a, a once a week columnist or can you submit when you want to? Uh, no, like, do you have deadlines? I, I do. Well, I submit about three times a week. So oh, okay. yeah, yeah, I was writing more than that. And of course, we're much busier during general session. But, um, you know, so this, this kind of thing where uh, it seems as though there are entities trying to make the public less safe for whatever reason. Um, I've written a lot about the drag shows in public because we had an effort in our general assembly to uh, make it difficult or impossible for drag shows to just pop up anywhere. I had a friend of mine ask me, why are we having to create laws for this? Isn't this something they, they have these things in bars and clubs. And I said, well, they used to. Movie now, yeah. Move, yeah. They, they used to have them in places that naturally already had their own age restriction, like a bar or a club. It's been the trend in the last handful of years for them to have a drag show pretty much anywhere bookstores, restaurants, any kind of theater. And now we've had these lawsuits filed by the ACLU in Tennessee in two counties where it it has um, the law is not has been enjoined in those the new law that the uh, General Assembly passed that classifies the performers that are drag performers. Uh, they basically classify them the same as you would uh, in the same category as a stripper or they use the terminology go-go dancer in our in our legislate in our legislation We're a little behind the times down here a little bit behind but essentially uh that's the, the idea is if it if that performance includes a person that is a male or a female impersonator it is the type of performance that would have to have a a qualifier an age restriction and they're suing and saying essentially that they they have the right, the First Amendment right to include minors in their shows. 
Once once the ACLU figures it out, uh, gets you on the radar or the Southern Poverty Law Center gets you on the radar, then it's, it's all hands on deck to try to think. So I, I, I want to hear all about that. And, and you know, we are pressed for time because it's okay. it is a time show, but I ripped some headlines off the site okay. that you wrote. Um, yes. if you'd like to tell us a little about those stories and what okay. your uh, journalistic method is like writing them, uh, would that be okay? Yes. Yeah. All right. So so your most recent, although I didn't look today, I probably should have, uh, Tennessee lawsuit seeking voting privilege reinstatement for former convicted felons leads to stronger voter integrity. Uh, Now, now my understanding is if you have a felony on your record since sometime in 1981 from anywhere in the country, you can't vote in Tennessee. Is that now changing if this lawsuit is successful? Uh, It, it, I believe, and now I need to look at the article and what I wrote, but uh, what I think happened is it was stopped. So they aren't going to actually be able to add 475,000 new names to the voter rolls because that's what the um, that is what they are saying would have been added had they been able had this lawsuit been successful. So it's the most recent precedent in this type of case, which it was really great that the uh, that Attorney General Scrimetti caught this. It was the most recent precedent in this type of case that basically said, even though you live in the state of, even though you 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 lived in another state and you were convicted in another state and you may have even gotten your rights back in another state, you come to Tennessee, you're still going to have to submit yourself to the same criteria that any other convicted felon would have to submit themselves to in the state of Tennessee in order to get your voting rights back. And through that lawsuit, they actually found two pieces of legislation in different parts of um, of the code that essentially say the same thing, which is not only do you have to serve your sentence and all of the things that the judge passed down, but that would also include any kind of financial consequences. So apparently this person had not satisfied that part of his punitive consequences when he was sentenced. So therefore, you're not going to get your voting rights back. And this other lawsuit, which represented five other people, now it's not that they're being disenfranchised. It's just that they figured out they haven't finished their, they basically haven't fulfilled the criteria that is required by the state of Tennessee. It's just a thoroughness. I don't know why they didn't know it was there before, but now we know. And so good on A.G. Scarmetti for catching that and being able to address this lawsuit with, yeah, we're not disenfranchising them. They just haven't completed the criteria that we require to get their voting rights back. And it would have affected 475,000 people in the state of Tennessee. Just in time for an election. Um, Just in time for an election. Yeah. A.G. Jonathan Scarmetti is who we're talking about, told State Coordinator of Elections, Mark Goines, who then issued a memo on the expanded criteria, shutting down the legal battle that's been waged with the NAACP for nearly three years. Mm -hmm. And what a surprise, like you said, uh, 470,000 new names on the state's voter rolls would have affected the outcomes of an all-important election coming in the next year. Okay. Next up, unless you have anything to say about Mark Goins. No. Okay. No. Uh, all right. Uh, Williamson County parents ask school board for policy that will allow only allow American and Tennessee state flags mm-hmm. in classrooms. Oh, boy. Here we go with the culture wars again. 
Uh, at the monthly Williamson County School Board meeting, parents voiced their concern about the recent appearances of pride and LGBTQ+, whatever comes next, flags being displayed in the classrooms all over the district. Parents argued the classrooms should be neutral and void of all symbols that detract from what should be the primary purpose, education. I'm sorry, educating students and expressed a desire to see a policy established that would allow only the display of American and Tennessee state flags. What did you learn going through your research on that one? Um, well, I my research wasn't deep. I, I showed up to the meeting and I just was listening to the, the two opposing sides. And essentially what the parents on our side were asking for is, is for us just to have flags that are American or Tennessee state flags because the propaganda, the classroom is no place for propaganda. And as it said in here for adjudicating, I think it was one of the parents uh, discussed um, adjudicating politics in the classroom. Um, our classrooms are, our kids are sent to school to learn math, to learn reading, to learn history, to learn science. Um, when they walk into a classroom and they see that flag there, it exposes, say, say there's some kids that don't even know what it is. It opens up the opportunity for that teacher to share information with that child that that child's parents might not want them to know about. So we feel that if you're going to um, allow that kind of flag, then the parents were asking, well, why not? I, I can't even, with my children being in Williamson County Schools, I can't even imagine what would happen to a teacher if, say, they put a Trump flag up in their classroom. Or, or a Nazi flag. Or, or a, a Nazi flag. flag. Sure. Or, yeah, as my friend said, she's she and her family are Iranian. Uh, why don't you, I would feel more comfortable if you put the Iranian flag up. Um, the insinuation from the other side was the absence of that flag would just most definitely create an environment that made students who might identify with that symbol uncomfortable. So it's an assumption. It has to be there. Well, there are 10,000 flags. So it'd be like the right. Israeli flag, so, the Korean flag, right. the Japanese flag. Right. Everybody's it, excluded from two. Right. Yeah. It, it's absurd, absurd to for anybody to walk into a classroom and make the presumption that in order to make me comfortable, they're going to just fill, have to fill the room with symbols that make me comfortable. That's it's it's absurd. So I think that of, was, fair, it's going to be a lot of them, but no Ten Commandments, of course. Now, in no, no. your headline says classrooms. So we're not talking yes. about, you know, seniors and juniors in high school. This could go all the way down to elementary, kindergarten, yes. daycare, yes. you name it. Yes. And more often than not, that's exactly where you're seeing them. We're not necessarily, there's one uh, from what I was, from what I understand from social media posts, there was one in Grassland Elementary School. So they're all over the place. And it, there's the argument that- Grassland also has the furries. Yes. The, the, the <laughs> argument that Superintendent Golden is making is, well, we can't tell the teachers- um, what they can and can't put up in their classroom, it violates their First Amendment rights. And and I I address that is a couple of uh, case precedents where if you're representing your employer, you your First Amendment rights do not usurp the reason you're there, which is to teach those students. Those those students' right to learn is not usurped by your First Amendment right and your need 
to express yourself to your students, who, by the way, are captive in your classroom. It isn't like they have a choice. They can't look away. So it's a slippery slope. I mean, we just had a cultural war election here two weeks ago in in Franklin. And and if if they would have dared to say, well, it's my First Amendment right to hang a swastika in my kindergarten school because I just happen to think it's historic and nice looking the place would have been, you know, nuked. So yeah, it's it's a very slippery slope to be able to say like, look, we're going to go with the social issues we like, like LGBTQ yeah. stuff and not what we hate, which apparently is the other side. So, all right. Well, and not, n- not too dissimilar, but so wrong. Yeah. RuPaul's Night of the Living Drag Show performed at the Grand Old Opry of all places yes. and other venues yes. in Tennessee with no age restrictions on attendance. Yes. Alan yes. Jackson, Vince Gill are members of the Opry, and Christian yes. singer Amy Grant is his wife, Dolly Parton, of course. I wonder how they feel about that. Think they'll induct RuPaul into the Opry? Uh, you know, it's an interesting, that one was interesting because they would argue, well, it's not the Opry, it's a venue. So this Voss Productions, they essentially paid uh, that company that owns the Opry, um, they, they rented it. They essentially rented it for the evening so that they could put on their production of that show, which is very, very sexually graphic. And it it would be what our state legis our, our state legislation refers to as of a prurient nature uh, to evoke, you know, sexual excitement. Um, it, it, it that's a good question. In fact, when I when I was getting ready to post that story, I tagged the Opry in a, in a Twitter post and I absolutely got no response, but I think what it is is because the sixth circuit hasn't made a determination on whether or not um, those shows should be illegal in just any venue. Uh, Nobody did anything. Not that I expected the district attorney of Davidson County to actually do anything anyway, but yeah, yeah, I you think it was think. a week after the law passed in Tennessee when Lizzo brought mm-hmm. drag performers onto stage yeah. and made a big speech about it in front of an all ages crowd. So it hasn't been enforced, let's just say, no. on yeah. the law that was passed. So yeah. the law didn't have any teeth, I guess. No, well, it 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 does if you enforce it. And what we have seen is like in uh in the two counties in down in Shelby County and out in um East Tennessee they sued the aclu filed a lawsuit so it's almost like they want you to try to enforce it because Mm -hmm. then they can file yet another lawsuit and just pick off each county at a time and enjoin Mm -hmm. law in each and every county but in theory it's it's an effective law in 93 out of 95 counties in tennessee you just don't see anybody enforcing it because we've got these lawsuits that are still in litigation well, I was joking about inducting RuPaul into the Opry, yeah. but if if she wants to be inducted and they say no, here comes the discrimination lawsuit. <laughs> I'm yeah, assuming so. so. Yeah, I was just very dangerous precedent. I was shocked that pe- more people weren't sort of outraged because the Opry is such a Nashville um, icon. Like it's one of our treasures and mm-hmm. I, it felt like it was being defiled with that yeah. type of entertainment. And so, the longest running radio station in the country yes. for those, or show, radio show in the country. Yes. yes. Um, okay. I lumped two of them into one. Let's see if we can get it out here. Um, uh, 
and then I'll ask you, you know, the big stories you're working on. Uh, definitely want to have you back often to keep us up to date on, on Tennessee news uh, from our perspective that we like. Um, so a man who was discovered to be a twice deported Honduran national has been charged with two separate murders in Nashville in this past week. Yeah. Was he deported from Tennessee twice? Did he fail it in our immigration enforcement in Tennessee or did we or was he deported twice elsewhere and found his way to Tennessee to kill those two people, which is totally preventable crime, obviously, since if he was removed and stayed out, he yes. couldn't have killed anyone. Right. And the second one is the killer of a Chattanooga father and businessman yes. has 66, yes. 66 prior arrests, not six, 66 prior arrests on his record with two involving confrontations with a weapon. A former TBI employee says that the justice system in Tennessee is like a, quote, criminal mill, unquote, awful. What's with our immigration yeah. system and criminal mill in Tennessee? Okay, so it didn't, it, in the research that I did for that story, it doesn't indicate where he was deported from, just that he had been deported, I think, twice. And so that typically is not information You'll get that information in their criminal record. It will be in the criminal record. It will tell you exactly where they were deported from. And then they just simply sneak back in or they're smuggled back in and somehow make their way up here. Um, it's just our, our border is Swiss cheese, especially now. They just get back up here. And so he was clearly, he was a, a he had had, I believe, prior felonies on his record from before, the other times before when he was in this country, he committed other crimes. So clearly they're not being vetted when they come across the border because he's not coming across the border at an entry point. And even if he was, they have no way of checking their background to determine whether or not this is a safe person that should be, you know, should be let into our country. They're simply not vetting anyone, not with so any- how did a, how did it, uh, whether he was, how did a Honduran, I mean, anyone can look at a map and see that Tennessee is not yeah. exactly a border state. No. How did he find his way here? That's a good question. Um, in, in any of the research that I did, it's it's really kind of a, a big question mark. Um, you know, we are hearing tales of flights coming in in the middle of the night up in the Chattanooga area. We have been hearing tales over the past year or so about buses coming up to Tennessee in the middle of the night. These things always happen under the cover of darkness. Um, whether or not those in our state that could actually do something about it know, there's some equivocality to that, but it isn't as though we haven't been trying to draw attention to it, like huge attention to it, because you're right, we're not a border state. And yet at the same time, we are seeing a lot of um, illegal immigrants make their way to Tennessee and commit crimes against Tennesseans. Mm -hmm. And it's just something that should not be happening. Um, so, this, so we don't have a paper trail for him, and I totally no. get that. It's very obscure. But we yeah. do know about the 66 prior arrests yes. for this guy. I do yes. also know that Governor Lee, he's about to finish his second term, his last term. He made prison reform a priority in, in his first campaign yes. and actually did some stuff. Does this have to do with that? I don't know the name of the gentleman who committed the 66 prior arrest and the murder of the father and businessman. 
Uh, but tell us that story. That's a sad one. That's very, very sad. This this young father was just walking downtown and he was headed to his 20th high school class reunion. And this man who was clearly unstable, he's an unstable, dangerous person. Um, he just somehow, the, the, the witnesses indicated that there was a scuffle. There were words exchanged. There was a scuffle and the gentleman, the criminal, he had a weapon on him and he just pulled it out and just point blank shot this guy and killed him. And how this happened is because with my background in the law enforcement that I have, um, essentially what you see happen a lot, it's exactly what I wrote and what I found in other articles that they quoted from uh, district attorneys um, and defense attorneys. This is about conviction rates and not, I, I did a year in law school. So the first thing I learned in criminal law and my criminal law professor said, nobody likes to go to court. And so what they do is they make deals. So they make these deals where they will drop some of the charges, reduce other charges. And some of these attorneys said the reason they reduce the charges is because the district attorneys feel as though there isn't enough evidence necessarily to convict on those charges that they're initially charged with. So what they'll do is they'll drop some charges, they'll reduce charges, and essentially these people will spend very little, if any time, incarcerated because that also costs taxpayer money. And for some crazy reason, which I think this is how this relates to the Bill Lee story, he he feels as though letting more people out is a kinder way. I don't know if it's a rehabilitation approach, but we need these people to be off the street and to keep people to keep people safe. Well, if they're so, looking at the cost of incarceration, it just cost this father and businessman his life. His and life. So that's a disaster. The whole yes. family is shattered. So that yes. is obviously a not very good pal yes. policy. Yes. Uh, no. Pretty disgusting. Do we happen to know if this guy is out on bail again or is he now? No, life? This, okay. this put him away. He was not granted bail. Thank heaven. And mm -hmm. so I don't know if he will go to trial or not. I imagine it will depend on whether or not he is his attorney recommends, I imagine they will make some sort of deal. They will make some sort of deal, but he will end up incarcerated because this is first degree murder. I mean, yeah. you can't, well, it might not 60, be. 67 strikes and you're out. Okay. Yeah. 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 Goes. Yeah. Uh, so what are you working on? Uh, a little sneak peek for us now. Anything in particular? Well, we are working on a collaborative effort on immigration. Um, because really a lot of the issues that we experience as Tennesseans, as Americans, a lot of this stuff is coming back to the fact that our border is so porous and that so many people are coming in, in, in numbers that we have never, ever seen before in the history of our country. And it's affecting everything. Um, particularly those states down at the border. But we, what we want to know and what we want to understand as citizens is we have state sovereignty. If there are illegal aliens getting into our state, we want to know how it is they're getting in, 
what it is that our law enforcement mechanisms are doing about it. Are they keeping track of it? If they are, do they have any kind of plan to execute to, to reduce the illegal immigration in Tennessee? Um, how are we imposing punishment on anybody who is here illegally? Are we deporting them? Are we looking to see who it was that facilitated how it was that they got to Tennessee and how are those people being treated by our law enforcement? Are they arresting them? Are they doing, what are they doing? We're trying to figure out how it is we end up with, we have ended up with so many illegal immigrants in Tennessee and considering that we're not a border, a border state, it's a, it's a giant question mark. So do we have a guesstimated on, number? No, that's part of, um, part of our research. So I imagine we will have something when we put it all together, but how is I'll it affecting the homeless and drug crisis and gangs and crime? Well, that would be because they're putting, um, additional, um, the, all of those additional resources that we would have to address those issues that we just organically have as a state. Like you mentioned, we will, we've always had homeless people and, you know, all of those social issues, but it just puts extra stress on the system when you have additional people coming in from outside the state that are applying for and getting, um, getting welfare, getting some kind of, of assistance that would ordinarily go to a citizen that lives here. What about and the so, seats at the public schools uh, with the English as a second being, language? Those, Yes, they, those are, are they overwhelmed. Um, I, I, from what I understand, in Davidson County, um, in Nashville, yeah, mostly in in the Metro School, I, they are having issues with uh, overcrowding. I can't say specifically that it's due to the immigrant population, but when we try to address this with our state legislature, they come back to us with, "Well, the Supreme Court says." you know, they have rights. Um, in, inherently, they have the same rights as Americans when it comes to education by virtue of the fact that they're in America. Right. So that's one of those precedents that if our state legislature would just file a lawsuit, it could possibly end up in like a Roe v. Wade type of a situation where it gets overturned because it was it's bad. It's bad case law. It's bad precedent. Yeah. And places like uh, Southern California, Arizona and New Mexico mm -hmm. have dealt with uh, rampant drinking and driving accidents yeah. uh, because of this, too. There's a culture of yes. being allowed to drink and drive where they come from and they bring yes. it here and you end up killing kill kids in a crosswalk. It's uh, yes. there's a lot of residual effects to this, including incarcerations, yes. police, confrontations with police. It's, yes. it's very, very taxing. Yes. Um, any other big stories for us? Um, you know, how we sort of do things is because the news cycle, you know how that is, it, it is very um, fast. So things come up. I basically get my assignments in the afternoon. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I do my research and I write my article. So it's, it's all very fast. We will work on pieces like this immigration piece. This is something all of us have been working on for the last few weeks. So it's a little bit more in depth. But because of the the clip that the news cycle um, runs at, we generally just sort of assign 
uh, get assignments in the afternoon and we do our research and we try to be as thorough as we possibly can with fi finding all the facts. Um, personally, he, I get a lot of stuff uh, with regard to the grassroots that I am so tied to here in Tennessee. And so Jason tends to send me stuff that I have connections that I can make a phone call or send a text or make a make some kind of connection with somebody that I know, or it's something I've had experience with so I can address it. And I know where to look as far as my research goes. So I don't know. He hasn't, he hasn't sent me my assignment for today yet. So. Okay. Well, uh, I'm 30 sure his time. So <laughs> maybe he's getting ready for his big birthday bash. Um, okay. In the last few minutes we have here, do you have a, um, a story from the last year of working there or a little less than a year that that stands out as one of your favorites or something that you just really stuck with you or even something that maybe you really want to get back to and follow up on anything that you can just leave us with? I think right now, one of the biggest issues that we should all be paying attention to is the um, the mental health liaisons that the state of Tennessee is wanting to place in every single school in the state. Um, they cannot do this. The, the Department of Education in Tennessee cannot do this without the help of the of the Tennessee legislature. Um, the legislation is very specific in the law. Uh, the General Assembly tells the schools what they can and can't manage. And uh, health care has never been one of those things. The only thing that the schools are allowed to address with healthcare with the students is essentially to observe whether or not they seem to be sick. And if they, if they look sick, you can send them home and send them to the doctor. That's why there was so much um, upheaval with COVID is they were trying to impose themselves in a way that they really, the law did not give them the right to do. So in order for them to put mental health care professionals in every single school, which by the way, most of these mental health care professionals will be on board with the LGBTQ plus agenda. They will put these people in the schools and these children will be sent to these people by with referrals by the school um, their school counselors without the consent of parents because they don't need it. Yeah. They and weaponize so, the counselors and the nurses yes, and the teachers and yes, the administrators and yes. the supervisors. Yes, I know. Well, yes, so, we are totally out of time. I really yeah. want to have you come back soon. Yeah. I know there's never enough time to Thank talk about you. all the news. Yeah. Uh, you do a great job. Uh, tell everyone uh, where they can go to find out more about you and follow your reporting. Well, I would recommend they all go to TennesseeConservativeNews.com. That's where all of my articles usually are. I'm not great on my socials with posting my stuff. I am on Twitter, but I'm my handle has nothing to do with the, with the paper. It's at the right side of reality, um, but I can't spell that for you. I should have been better <laughs> prepared for that. I'm just really not good with the socials. But you go to the- We'll put it the in the so show notes for folks. Yeah, go to the newspaper, go to their website, and my articles are always there. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks again. Keep doing a great job. Without you guys, we wouldn't know anything. I get lots of my content on the show from you all. So oh, thank keep you. Keep doing a good job and we'll keep doing a good job too. And well, we'll have support the paper. Support the paper. We are the only ones telling you everything that's going on up at the Hill and it's the truth. Yes. They take donations. All right. Well, yep. we'll see you soon. Thank you.
With Columbia, Tennessee-based EnergizeHealth.com, you lose fat fast, simply and naturally, without restrictive exercise or cardboard, dry, tasteless food. Revolutionize your health with this proprietary 88-day science from John and Chelsea Jubilee. People report getting off medications and reversing ailments. Energy, mental clarity, and alertness go through the roof. Look and feel many years younger and oftentimes unrecognizable. I know. I'm an alumnus and lost 70 pounds of fat with John and Chelsea and wouldn't have energy to do three shows a week without it. Hit the link in show notes for your free consultation and discount. Money back guarantee so you have nothing to lose but unhealthy fat. EnergizedHealth.com. Hey, my name is Amy Souza. I am a women's rights activist uh, and workshop leader, and you are listening to the Mill Creek View podcast. Welcome to the Steve and Steve segment of our show, where we cover what we just heard. Producer Steve, what do you think of our guest Kelly Jackson with TennesseeConservativeNews.com? Well, it's another refreshing face to have on the show, Steve, and uh, I think she's going to be a great addition with you and Let's Go Brandon's segment. Now you can have a Let's Go, Let's go Kelly. Let's Go Kelly. And uh, yeah, I have to think of something more clever than that. Miss right? <laughs> Jackson, Miss Jackson, if you're nasty, how's that? <laughs> yeah. For those 80s uh, pop culture fans. Okay, well, um, yes, I thought that was a good show. Uh, Let's get my blood pressure up a little now uh, with clip number one. It's 30 seconds. Left was never able to be victorious in its argument. Sure, there there was a battle out there, but America was not really susceptible to the arguments of economic Marxism. But cultural Marxists, and especially Gramsci, uh, came up with an interesting idea where there was Marxist-Leninist thought, which was the revolutionary impulse, there was uh, this idea of gradualism. Gradualism meant that we can kind of do this thing bit by bit and think of this as the long march through the institutions. Oh, we have been talking about that for, what, the full time we've been on air together, Steve. Thank you, Andrew Breitbart. He is my uh, my my touchstone, my guiding light. And man, is he needed now more than ever. Uh, for those that don't know or remember, it was Andrew that pioneered citizen journalism. You just heard from one yep. in the 90s that exploded today with names like Ben Shapiro, Steve Bannon, Charlie Kirk, James O'Keefe from Project Veritas, now OMG, Huntington Post, where he actually came from, Drudge Report, and of course, Breitbart.com. And TennesseeConservativeNews.com, as a matter of fact, you can ask him. Uh, I'll give you quotes from him at the end, so stay tuned for that. Okay, Uh, yesterday I touched on the goings-on in the debate world of high school campuses and law schools, uh, as promised. Uh, I'm going to play a clip for you about last year's national championship. Uh, This is the future of America, and especially our courts and judges. What you are about to hear is the final round of the most prestigious national high school debate tournament. Team A proceeds to tell Team B that they will not be debating the assigned topic, benefits slash cost of the IMF, because trans people are being genocided by MAGA Republicans, and that is way more important than debating the IMF. Team A starts off by playing an audio clip from a 1980s AIDS protest and says the 28 states want to kill trans people like her. They tell the judges that this round does nothing to the IMF itself, and as such, they have decided that this round is going to be a debate about debate 
And the judge's choice instead is whether to affirm our performance. They proudly declare that they will occupy the debate space until trans debaters can participate safely. Team B then immediately concedes the round because they don't want to dispute the trans genocide is real and be labeled transphobic. Listen to this crap. Resistance took the form of non-cooperation. Demonstrators had to be dragged to paddy wagons, many shouting as they were carried away. Do you think you really accomplished a great deal? Yes, I think we do. What else can we do? I've done everything. I've called everybody. I've got appointments with everybody. I've got to come to City Hall and state my case. We're dying. The city is dying. I don't know that man's name, but I know a little of the hopelessness and the horrible sinking fear in his voice. Here's how I prepped for the TOC. I woke up a week before and learned that 28 instead of 27 states wanted to kill me. The clip I played is from the 1987 ACTA protest in New York City. It was not the first and certainly not the last demonstration of its kind. It joins a tradition of trans and queer protests against institutions and to re reform communities that are violent and exclusive. We are here to join this tradition in our own small way. So welcome to the protest. We are tired of how debate treats trans people. More than that, we are tired of the way that their treatment is normalized, how it is treated as a necessary byproduct of having good discourse. When a nationally ranked team is bold enough to read arguments and make trans people uncomfortable in front of an 11 person panel and not be called out for it, something needs to change. When a trans kid can go three years in debate believing being misgendered was simply something he needed to take in order to win ballots, something needs to change. When almost every trans person quits debate or considers quitting several times a month, several times a week, several times a day, something needs to change. Change. First, the framework. Status quo political discourse remains fixated on the notion of the child, symbol of a future society we must protect, Baden 12. Politicians universally frame their debaters around the question of what policies are best for children, who, keep, who keeps the child safest. Politics, however, supposedly radical, is simply the universal movement of submission to the ideal of the future, to preserve, maintain, and upgrade the structures of society and to proliferate them through for okay, all just two the minutes. sake of all the children. Wanted. And it's for this reason- I don't know what you're doing over there, but- uh, uh, That's under two minutes. That's one, one minute and 58 seconds, Steve. I guess you could take- We got plenty of it. of it. First of all, that's on Zoom. <laughs> A totally impersonal medium of conversation as she rants. She doesn't get any emotion in her eyes to read the room of anyone that may react. Uh, not debate, certainly, but screed. Did you catch it, though? That wasn't the question. In debate lingo, what Team A did is called a critique, K-R-I-T-I-K, -I -I a strategy where students reject the assigned debate topic and instead talk about far left causes that they deem more important, like transgenocide in this case. Where did they learn this from? The National Speech and Des Debate Association. They have a free curriculum that teaches kids to reject the assigned topic and go on a Marxist rant instead. Wow. This is sick. Intro to critiques. A critique is a criticism of an assumption or mindset of your opponent. Typically, these positions will focus on power structures that exist around us and how they cause the problems we ought to address, learn to identify, respond to, or run critical, with a K, arguments, NSDA Learn National Speech and Debate Association, right off their website. Use our free self-paced online courses to increase your knowledge of Lincoln-Douglas debate or you can share them with your students for either independent learning or as a peer coaching resource. It's right there, intro to coaching, intro to framework, intro to philosophy, and boom, intro to critiques with a K. Here's what one judge tells kids about critiques before they start the debate. 
I'm quoting now. I read really weird shit like AFFs about Scooby-Doo and BDSM and S, not Scooby-Doo related BDSM. These were two separate cases. So if you want to read some obscure philosopher who makes you happy or try out a new position, I'm the right person to do it in front of. This is adults judging kids at debate tournament. Wow. Sick, right? The rest of the round, which goes on for 13 minutes, is a struggle session where team A states that misgendering is violent and that if you do it, you should automatically lose. Again, this is the final round of the most prestigious high school debate tournament of the school year, and they made a mockery of it with their selfish, unintelligible performative art. The worst part, the judges praised Team A for their bravery and courage and crowned them the national champs. This is sick. It's anti-merit, anti-debate, and anti-American. No wonder droves of kids are quitting high school debate. The National Speech and Debate Association cannot be reformed. Uh, it's time for viable high school debate alternatives to stand up and welcome young Americans who actually want to debate. Okay, fast forward to today, and one of the students from Team A now judges a high school debate. Here, here's their paradigm, which is the, the phrase that they call their criteria for judging. They call them paradigms. So paradigm statement. Hello, debate. How you want? Smiley emoji of some kind. I will auto-drop you for being mean, and I will auto-drop you for making the round less safe slash comfortable, e.g. I will drop you for misgendering anyone in the round. Nice, right? Wow. It gets worse. Steve, it they're going to make their way into HR departments tomorrow. It gets worse. It's about 13 minutes long if you find it on the internet, so I can't play it all for you. Wish I could. Team A goes up against another team that argues that because one of a of Team A's members is white, they should lose the round. <laughs> to be a top high school debater in the U.S., you have to embrace full blown racism. So this is this vividly reminds me of a little story when I was in Seattle and was a member of the alumni group from my college that got to review applications and grant scholarships to kids that got accepted to the University of Southern California from the Washington State. A lot of UW uh, you know, potential grads that wanted to go down there. Before I left in disgust, we had a young recent graduate lady that joined the group of about seven of us and said exactly this, only that if it was a male, she immediately dismissed the resume just on the basis of being a man's, man's name, by the way, at the time, because they had an unfair advantage, just an assumption. Uh, at, at the time, I thought, honey, you are in for a rude awakening at Microsoft where she worked because that place was all alpha male all the time, dominated at the supervisor level, at least when I started working around there 20 years ago. Well, that has changed with DEI and so has meritocracy. And there are more like her than me in corporate America. And as we just heard uh, in debate society, sad if we can't fix those. Uh, Steve, do you remember debate team from when you were young? You know, I didn't I didn't do debate. That wasn't my thing. But I thought debate was you were handed a subject and you debated the the merits of it being right or wrong. And it didn't matter. Yeah, I did do a little thing. I remember running for a class. I was talking, and my choice was something about taxes, and I, I did a little brochure. I ran about it, and I had to debate somebody who was the opposite of that, and I remember that. 
Yep. And that was in early um, early high school, and I really enjoyed it. Trying to, mm-hmm. but when you got through, then it was you were critiqued on how well you argued the merits of whatever it was you were promoting. But exactly. there was none of this. And stuff. sometimes you were probably given an assignment that maybe you didn't personally agree oh. with, but you were just trying to practice out your debate. You certainly wouldn't say, uh, "Please debate the merits of uh, of Israeli being a democracy or capitalistic in the Middle East," and say. Uh, no, thank you. I would much rather talk about transgenocide in Albania. Thank you very much. And let's go on with that debate because I p- plan for it. Right. And then win the darn thing. So well, things have definitely changed at the top. I do have one speed. question, Steve, before you move on. Okay. Uh, we've got about five minutes. What state is pushing to murder trans people? Do you know of any state, any county, any individual who said they want to kill a individual who's chosen to do something to their body that we may not agree do you know anything so they're lying flat out from the beginning they lost the debate yeah they didn't say they had to tell the truth critics have say nothing about truth they just say positions yeah so they're by making a position that is wholly uh uh unrebuttable because it doesn't exist you therefore can say free palestine it's not unfree there's no occupation and there's no palestine so the phrase right there you're talking about fantasy so what state state of confusion Welcome to my quotes for the day. But before I share, I want to remind everyone that we actually have podcasts. Uh, that's Tennessee, Washington, and Florida is back with the great Julie Barrett. I hope you all check that out. Just I saw that on Rumble just today, as a matter of fact. So go to Rumble. Be sure to subscribe to that one. Or Spotify or iTunes or Deezer or iHeartRadio or any of your favorite apps. Search for Mill Creek View. You'll see them all. Hit the subscribe button and follow us. We really hope you do, and we really hope you'll like it. Um, We put a lot of work into those, and they're totally free, so check them out. I'm a former lefty. I understand how vicious these people are. I understand that they feel they have the right to control the sandbox, and I am trying to orchestrate media that isn't just out there to push the right of center libertarian narrative. I'm out here to destroy the false order, the false control that the left has in controlling the mainstream media in America. Andrew Breitbart said that politics is downstream from culture. Andrew Breitbart said that that was true. Then, by the way, I think the enemy heard him say that and co-opted the culture into politics with actors like AOC and Elizabeth Warren. I can go on the fake Indian. And now in 2023, we have culture is downstream from DEI woke politics. Just saying the army of emboldened and gleefully ill-informed is growing. Andrew Breitbart. Can you can you say BLM, Antifa, pro Hamas college kids? Right again, Andrew. It's fun to be liked, but when standing up for what you believe in, it's also very fun not to be liked. Andrew Breitbart, I like that. The viciousness, the lack of rules is so absolute within the leftist framework that the ends justify the means, that my media is very much organized to try and go toe-to-toe with those people to say, we know what your motivations are. We know how vicious you are, but we are not afraid of you. Andrew Breitbart was not afraid. Born February 1st, 1969, exactly two years before me. 
died of heart failure, March 1st, 2012. Rest in peace. You certainly did live in peace. Did not live in peace. Thank you for all you did. That's it for this episode. Thank you, Kelly Jackson, for reminding us citizen journalism, journalism is alive and well uh, and is the only true journalism, as long as they do it right. Until next time, this is your host, Steve Abramowitz, Editor-in-Chief of mcview.us. Peace in our time and G2G. or opinions represented on the podcast are personal and belong solely to the creator and do not represent those of people, institutions, or organizations that the creator may or may not be associated with in a professional or personal capacity unless explicitly stated.